They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators don't make a breakthrough in that time, the chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 3. The investigation begins. When police arrived at the scene, David Nathan led the officers to the spot where he'd found the body. The lights from their torches could just make out the depression in the earth and the top of the dirt-stained skull. They called Dr. Schultz van der Merwe, the consultant pathologist at the nearby Burton General Hospital. He was a South African with liberal views. He'd moved to England as an undergraduate. As dark had fallen, and following a brief initial examination, Dr. van der Merwe arranged for the skull to be covered and preserved the site for a more detailed examination and exhumation to begin in earnest the following day. A young constable was given the unenviable task of protecting the crime scene overnight, as the rest of the team left and the bridge gate was locked both sides behind them. His sense of dread must have been considerably heightened as the batteries of his torch failed and his only source of light flickered away. He spent the rest of what must have seemed an endless night in the company of a partially exhumed dead body in the total darkness, completely alone on the island. As dawn broke on Saturday, March the 27th, police carrying spades returned to the site. It took about 90 minutes to reveal the complete skeleton. The earth, a mix of light sandy soil and ash, fell away easily. Red flesh was still present around the abdomen and they could determine the colour of the hair and even the fingerprints were intact. The body was in a kneeling, squatting position. It was in a shallow grave, no more than three feet seven inches deep. The right arm was drawn across the front of the body and the left arm was behind the back. Both wrists were tied by the same piece of twine. The ankles were similarly tied. News quickly spread around the local area about the grim discovery and speculation in the town of Burton over the identity and motive began to swirl. In the immediate aftermath, the rumour mill suggested the victim was a woman. The body was recovered in one piece and taken to the district hospital for a detailed post-mortem. The post-mortem was conducted by Dr Keith Mant a world-renowned consultant in forensic medicine at King's College London and home office pathologist. Mant had previously served as a war crimes investigator at the end of World War II, and as part of his outstanding record, he'd investigated the victims found in mass graves at the newly liberated Ravensbrück concentration camp. Mant carried out 150 autopsies on exhumed bodies at that camp, and his reports were later used in war crimes trials. Mant was highly experienced in the identification from skeletal remains. The victim was in safe hands. In a little over two hours, Dr Mant completed his work. He concluded the victim was male, 
five feet eight inches tall of below average build with small hands and well-kept nails. His hair was reddish brown and short. Now short hair was quite rare in young men in 1971. His lower jaw was prominent, it jutted out, and he had undergone extensive and quite unusual dental treatment, including an upper plate denture. On the ring finger of the right hand, there was a ring, a nine carat gold wedding ring. Mant wrote that the deceased must have followed a sedentary profession. Based on the condition of his hands, he was clearly not a manual worker, and he took care of his personal appearance. The victim was naked, but for a pair of coloured nylon socks. His ankles were tied loosely over the socks, the ligature having long, free ends. Dr Mance said he was unable to identify any cause of death. There was no evidence of stab wounds in any of the major organs, no bone injuries, no trauma to the head or jaw which may have indicated the victim had suffered a violent blow. Indeed, the upper denture was still in place and that suggested no extreme blows to the head. The bones of the voice box were separated but by decomposition. They were not fractured or damaged. He noted that the victim had a significant underbite. Mance ended with a very clear conclusion and one that on the face of it doesn't appear to have much evidence to support it. And I quote, death occurred during some sexual deviation practice whilst the deceased was naked except for his socks. The ligatures were present at death and part of the sexual deviation act. It's not uncommon for sexual deviationists to tie themselves up, allowing limited movements of the hands and having secured ligature to the neck, they can tighten and loosen the pressure and so cause asphyxia. A ligature tied around the neck would place pressure on the vagus nerve and that can heighten sexual awareness. However, the presence of any ligature around the neck can cause immediate sudden loss of consciousness and that usually causes further tightening and death. There is no specific mention of any medical or forensic evidence that supports that assertion. The assumption seems to be made purely based on the fact that he was tied up loosely. Dr Mant believed the death had been from asphyxiation during what he called a sexually deviant act. He concluded that given the amount of freedom in the hands of the victim, that meant there was no sinister motive in the binding, and that the victim could have at any time slipped his legs through the rope and freed himself. The deceased could have untied himself at any time. Dr Mant also stated that he himself had carried out an experiment with the rope in a similar position and found that he was able to pull his legs through so that one arm was at the front and one arm was at the back, exactly in the way the body was found. So, no foul play. Maybe. But he didn't bury himself. The UK on Friday, March 26, 1971 was a very different place than today. Benny Hill topped the UK TV ratings. Bangladesh on that day declared its independence from Pakistan. Hot Love by T-Rex was at number one in the UK charts. And in America, Me and Bobby McGee by Janis Joplin topped the Billboard 100. It was a different century. Things worked differently. 
the approach the police took to investigations was completely different to today. There were no computerized systems. There were no mobile phones to trace a person's whereabouts. There was no internet or email. There were no CCTV cameras recording all our movements. All police records and medical records were physical. They were either typed or handwritten. There was no DNA testing. Forensic science was in its infancy. And the speed and accuracy and thoroughness of manual investigations were just not comparable to the methods used routinely today. However, even with the technological limitations of 1971, the police were very confident. The dental records were unique. And that gave investigators great hope that the body would soon be identified. These days, we are used to hearing of identification of very badly decayed bodies being achieved through dental records alone. And for most people, that would be with only average amounts of dental care. The record of the mouths of most people can be easily traced through their dentists. And when the dental work is so unusual, so unique to an individual, that is even easier, surely. Details of the body's dental plate were shared across local and then national dentists in the weekly and monthly publications that are regularly read by thousands in that profession. Nothing came. Help was sought from the union that represented dental workers. At branch meetings up and down the country, members were asked if they recognised the work. Again, nothing. Dentures were exhibited at the Dentalex exhibition in 1971 in London, where over 10,000 dentistry professionals attended, and the details were published in the Dental Laboratories Association newsletter. Dental surgeries were visited by the police to exhaust this normally most reliable means of identification, but every single effort came up blank. As time went on, it became clear he wasn't going to be identified by dental records. Was the dental work of such poor quality that any dentist would not want to claim him as a patient? Was the dental work even undertaken by an unregistered or backstreet dentist? Is that even a thing? Of course, back in 1971, there were no computerised records or systems. Everything was in a physical file, and this made comparison and cross-checking possible, but hugely time-consuming, and the possibility of human error enormous. It's quite possible that if a computerised system had been available at the time, then the body would have been identified almost immediately. But maybe the inability to track down such unusual dental work is a clue in itself. Fingerprints recovered from the body were sent to police departments across the UK, but no matches came back. That's not that unusual. It really just means that it can be established that the victim wasn't in the criminal justice system. Every police force in the UK was notified and asked to submit descriptions of any missing men between the ages of 25 and 45, and they arrived in large quantities. Each suggestion was investigated, compared to the physical attributes and the dental work. In all over 500 potential identifications were considered, and one by one, they were all eliminated. The body was even sent to the Smithsonian Institute in Washington for further pathological examination and they determined an age range between 23 and 39. Generally, the police believed him to be around 30 at the time of his death and that that death occurred no more than 18 months before he was found. Burton District Coroner Mr Derek Auden concluded his inquest on March 26, 1974 
three years to the day of David Nathan's grim discovery. He recorded an open verdict, not murder, and the coroner congratulated the police for their extensive and thorough investigation. For clarification, what does an open verdict mean? Well, it's an official decision in the British court saying that the exact cause of someone's death is not known. Current legal guidance aims to avoid open verdicts. These days, an open verdict is only to be used as the absolute last resort if there's insufficient evidence to enable a coroner or jury to reach any other conclusion. Now, I'm not a coroner, but he was found naked, bound, in a shallow grave, with no clothes or means of identification, in a place where no one would ever find him. Call me old-fashioned, but that seems a little bit suspicious to me. A few people have asked me since I launched the podcast where they can see images and maybe maps and evidence from back in 1971. Now, there's a couple of places to do that. The Facebook group, Who is Fred the Head, is an excellent resource for that. And it's also got lots of conversation and discussion about what, what's going on around that particular case. But I've also created a Facebook page to accompany the podcast. And that has the images that I'm referring to actually divided by episode. So if you want to go there and have a look at some of the images that accompany each of the episodes, that's a good place to go to. You can find that Facebook page at Fred the Head Podcast. As you can probably imagine, some of those images are a bit gruesome, so probably best if you exercise some caution. If you're getting as intrigued as I am about this case, good, I need your help. And here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered to your phone, tablet or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify or Podbean. Now, back to the story. But what did the police find that they were able to use to move the investigation forward? Firstly, there was the ring, found on the ring finger of the right hand. I've heard it often described as a lady's ring. It's not really a lady's ring. It's a plain nine carat gold band. Now, all rings have a hallmark, and a hallmark can tell you a lot. Essentially, a hallmark is made up of four compulsory marks. One, who made the article so they can track down the manufacturer of the piece of jewelry. Two, a standard mark, which defines the fineness of the precious metal. So for a nine carat gold ring, that would be the number 375. It gives the assay office mark, i.e. which assay office assayed that piece of jewelry, and a date letter. That date letter is normally a year, although sometimes that letter can denote the last six months of a year and the first six months of the following year, and that was the case here. The ring was shown to have a date stamp of S, which is the last six months of 1967 and the first six months of 1968. So that's important. The police knew, unless something very strange was going on, 
that the body could not have been deposited earlier than the end of 1967. But the police were able to go further. By analysing the hallmark, they were able to track down who the manufacturer was. It was a company called Henry Shoal Limited, based in West Bromwich, Birmingham. They confirmed the ring had been made at the end of 1967, start of 1968, but importantly, hadn't been sold to a retailer until 1969. That's how Henry Shoal operated. They didn't sell direct to the public, they sold all their stock into the retail trade. They confirmed it was a ladies nine carat gold ring with an internal diameter of 18 millimeters and that made it a size O and a half in UK ring terminology. Now that's interesting because whilst the average for a woman is around an M which is quite close to an O, the average for a man is T, much much bigger. So whilst this ring would be a very average size for a woman it would be extremely small for a man. It was ostensibly a wedding ring but why wear a wedding ring on your right ring finger not your left ring finger? What does that signify? Did the person come from a culture where that is the norm or did it signify nothing and it was simply personal choice? Intriguing though. The second key discovery were the socks. They were nylon. They were described by police as pink. They were able to identify the manufacturer of the socks. The company was based in Leicester. There was a lot of sock manufacturing in Leicester at the time. Leicester is about 25 miles away from Burton. And it was part of a large consignment made by that company and then sold by a trader from a stall in Burton Market. That's important. It means that if those socks belonged to the victim, he'd probably have been around the Burton area for a while. One thing I've noticed about this, the reporting of the socks though, is that a lot of weight is placed on the fact that they were pink and therefore unusual and a particularly strange thing for a man to wear. I don't think that was the case. I think these socks were likely more to be kind of a mustardy, beigey pink kind of colour. And they were part of a large consignment, so they weren't that unusual. The police also had the rope. The rope that was used to tie the victim hand and foot. This was a loosely wound polypropylene twine, the kind that is used in industrial sites up and down the country for tying bales together, in fact tying anything together. There were no distinguishing features as such but police were able to trace the manufacturer to a company based in West Yorkshire. But that was it. You now know everything the police knew back in 1971. But 1971 was a different police era than today. I needed someone to guide me through the investigation, particularly in the sense of how things might have been quite different back in 1971 compared to today. In that regard, I was very lucky. I called on a friend of mine, a guy called Andy Huff. Now, Andy is a retired detective police superintendent, but more than that, he was head of the Regional Serious and Organised Crime Unit for the East Midlands. He's been involved in a lot of murder inquiries. 
He also features in a really good BBC documentary called Gun Number no. 6, which if you ever have the opportunity to watch it, I think it's still available, you should do. It's a brilliant documentary. Now, really important for me to point out, Andy has no involvement in this case from an official police investigative perspective. He's retired. But I have nagged him about this case for a long time. So he is pretty knowledgeable about the case. But he's also very knowledgeable about how policing has changed in the intervening period over the years. So I began by asking him, what are the standard processes involved when a body is discovered? The basic principles of go to the scene, determine death, establish, can it be explained or not? examination of the body, scene preservation, to get to the point where you can make a determination whether you're dealing with a potential homicide or you're dealing with a natural death that would just be a report to the local coroner. Okay, and would the, would the circumstances in which the body was found be relevant to that? For example, in the case of Fred, obviously he's found buried with his arms tied behind his back, but there's no obvious cause of death. But would the circumstances of, of, of that type of thing also influence the decision as to whether this was considered a natural or unnatural death? Uh, absolutely. Uh, an assessment of the body, the scene, the context is really important. So yeah. if uh, an elderly person found dead in bed in the morning, they've been subject to referral to the GP and medication, well, straight away, you're thinking this is a natural death. Yeah. They're under the GP. So the circumstances and context are really important. Now, in the case of Fred the Head, as we call him, clearly he didn't tie himself up and he didn't bury himself. Yeah. Uh, and regardless of cause of death, the circumstances themselves are A, unexplained, and two, suspicious. And so straight away, there is foul play, because even if he died naturally or by accident, then whoever has buried him has prevented a lawful burial, which yeah. in itself is an offence. So you've got criminality in any event. So the circumstances are important. The other issue with this case is, did the deceased meet their death at that site, or were they taken there unconscious, incapacitated, or already deceased? Was it a deposition site? Was it an attack and deposition site? To what degree is policing evolved so that 1971 would have been completely different to that or would it have been really a very similar approach as well? Um, uh, the basic concept of going to the scene, scene preservation, identify victim, determine cause of death, you know, the, the lines of inquiry, those unanswered questions, to what happened, where, when and how, who's involved and why did it happen. They remain. It's the type of response that is different and the capabilities of policing that have, that have moved on. And it's partly moved on and evolved because of the experience of those that went before us. Mm -hmm. So the senior detectives that dealt with his case in 1971 helped and shaped the development of senior detectives that came after them but 1971 was very different to 2021 in fact it was very different to 1974 um, because back in 1971 you had many police forces in england and wales come the first of april 1974 there's only 41 um, it didn't overly impact 
contact uh, Staffordshire Police um, because areas in Staffordshire, like, for example, Wolverhampton, uh, merged with an earlier version of West Midlands Police a few years before that. But the size of the force would have been much smaller. Its capabilities would have been very different to now. Um, in terms of forensic science, yes, they had access to fingerprinting. They had access to photography, albeit black and white. We know that from the photographs. Yeah. They could have taken casts, for example, using plaster of Paris. Uh, and they would have worked with blood groups. Um, DNA didn't come on for another 20 plus years and continues to evolve even now. Um, we, we did have access to Home Office Forensic Science Laboratories in those days, and they would consist of pathologists, chemists, biologists, handwriting experts, and they would have had the capability, for example, to examine bloodstain sheets, compare hair, skin, analysing human organs, you know, they'd use microscopes to examine stains and specimens, that type of thing. But they didn't have the advanced technology of something like DNA. Also, this was pre some of the very important cases, such as the Yorkshire Ripper, which I think changed yeah. policing in terms of the way records were kept and things were cross-referenced and things like that. To what, to, to what degree did things change on that side that probably wouldn't have been to the advantage in, uh, of policemen in 1971? The Police National Computer that keeps records of um, convicted criminals, for example, uh, we didn't see the installation of terminals uh, in many forces until 1973, mm -hmm. um, which is when each force had at least one terminal. Um, so the ability to communicate with with each other was fairly limited, albeit the Metropolitan Police Service and the forums that Scotland Yard has since the late 19th century issued something called the Police Gazette. It was issued on a daily basis. They would publish information about convicted persons including missing people, wanted people, stolen property. And that would go out to all forces across England and Wales, but it was a paper exercise. In 1972, so one year after this, the City of Birmingham Police introduced the first purpose-designed computerised command and control system. Back to 71, you know, we were, we were using operators and telephones, detectives, Police officers couldn't necessarily talk to one another because there wasn't a communication system to use and utilise to do that. It wasn't until 1974 when you got the big metropolitan forces that things started to develop. So yeah, it, it was it was in a very different place. Where he was found is literally on the border of Staffordshire and Derbyshire, right on yeah. right on the border within within 50 yards. If Staffordshire were looking after this, obviously if Staffordshire were investigating this case and they would have known, I guess, any of the missing people within Staffordshire who uh, might be relevant to the case. But how informed would they have been of, say, missing people in the Derbyshire area, given that it was literally 50 yards away? Would the level of interaction between the two forces have been close in those days or would they, would they be operating quite separately? They'd be operating quite separately, and, and you know, one of the criticisms of the police 
was the the lack of liaison between forces. Um, they weren't as mobile. They weren't as contactable as they they are now. So unless the senior detectives in Staffordshire approached, for example, Derby City Police or Derbyshire Constabulary and asked them for access to their missing persons, unless Derbyshire had published missing people through the police gazette issued through the Metropolitan Police Service, then the police in Staffordshire would not be aware of those other missing person cases. In a way that they would be today? In a way that they would be today. If it happened today, Radio Derby cover East Midlands, they'd be all over the case, not just Derbyshire, let's, let's be honest, with the internet and social media. Most populations across the world would be aware of this case probably within 24 hours. In those days, it would have been for the senior officer in charge of the case to ask the relevant question of the relevant person. Next time on The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head, I try and pull together what we know so far and start to outline an initial hypothesis of what might have happened. Now, it still feels like we're starting a jigsaw puzzle with most of the pieces missing and we've lost the lid as well, but I think we do have some clues that we can start tentatively arrange together and just see if they point in a certain direction. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>